Uh, good evening, everyone. Since tonight is uh, part three of a three-part series, I want to move um, a little more quickly than usual through this material so that we can sum up and have a conversation that incorporates the three different um, periods and kinds of messianism that we've talked about and just see where that conversation leads us. Um, so tonight, we'll finish by addressing the question of messianism and in particular following messiahs or ideas of messiahs in the contemporary world. Um, Martin Kafka, I think, put it well when he said in his particular vision of the place of the Messiah in Judaism and Jewish history, he said, the Messiah will come only when he is no longer necessary. He will come only on the day after his arrival. He will come not on the last day, but on the very last. So he has a kind of non-Messianic vision of Messianism, a notion of redemption that functions in a sense only with a Messiah who can be the Messiah by not being a Messiah at all, or a redemption that somehow happens in the absence of the kind of redeemer who is promised. And that I think this actually does reflect a tension within the rabbinic system itself. Remember the first uh, presentation in the series when we talked about that image of the river Sambation, right, where the 10 lost tribes who are necessary for fighting the wars that will then usher in the messianic redemption. They live beyond this mythic river that flows with, with uh, sand and rocks, but of course it only rests on, on what day? on the Sabbath, and then it's impossible for the 10 tribes to take up their implements of war, cross the river, and go and redeem the people of Israel, because that would be a violation of halakha. And the rabbinic system itself, it's Shabbos, so you can't go. And this is a way in which there's a, a reluctance to embrace unfettered messianism within the rabbinic system itself because messianism is to some degree at odds with a stable functioning rabbinic society. So what would really the redemption of that society look like? We talked about the restorative versus apocalyptic images of redemption, some in which it restores the past system but brings about its perfection in the future and some that are apocalyptic or utopian where the redemption actually looks like something categorically different, categorically other than what the world has been heretofore. I think that that's not the only kind of binary to think through the issue of messianism. There's also the distinction between passive and active messianism. And that might in fact be an even more important distinction when thinking about how messianic visions of redemption are configured in particular times and places and also where particular messianic movements fall out. Um, generally speaking, the more passive the attitude towards messianism, in general, these tend to be um, the less disruptive and the less violent, whereas the more active ones tend to be more violent or more disruptive. Hasidism is often associated with Messianism, and it's interesting to consider where does Hasidism fall out on this contiguum between the more passive and the more active. So wh what would we say about Hasidism? In general, 
there was an argument in the early stages of academic scholarship on Hasidism that said they were, for the most part, much more passive and much less activist in their messianism, that in the wake of Shabtai Tzvi, whom we talked about last time, obviously that went very, very badly. <laughs> it resulted in this huge historical disruption, really a catastrophe, and it was, without question, the largest messianic movement since the time of Jesus within the Jewish world. This, this was really, really widespread within the Jewish community, and it created not only major trauma in the Jewish community in the mid-17th century, but this continued for some time as there were crypto-messianists and dome, these other groups who secretly continued to believe that Shabtai Tzvi was the Messiah. And so in subsequent generations, if you didn't like someone's ideas and you thought they sounded a little too messianic, you could claim, aha, that person is a Sabatian. That person is a secret follower of Shabtai Tzvi. And with the onset of Hasidism, this was often a claim that was directed against Hasidim, against, against the Hasidic movement. They argued that they were Sabatians, and this was a way of trying to discredit them. Um, but the Sabatian or the Hasidic movement seems, in fact, to have, in many ways, scaled back its messianic discourse and replaces the idea from Isaac Luria that we talked about last time that seems to have played an important role in Shabtai Tzvi's messianic mission, the notion of tikkun, of elevating the divine sparks in order to rectify the configuration of divine light, which will then usher in the period of redemption, these actions of tikkun that are so emphasized in Lurianic Kabbalah are transmuted into dvekut, the emphasis on the union of the soul with God and of a more personal, spiritual kind of redemption. So this change of direction that we see in Hasidism, some have argued that's because Hasidism is trying to be less messianic and is seeking to place less emphasis on the notion of the Messiah because they also are cautious not only about being called Sabbatians, but they recognize the problems that arise when a real-world political Hasidic or Messianic movement develops, and they were concerned if there could become Hasidic Messianic movements that this could be incredibly disruptive. Nonetheless, um, there have been others who have argued that Messianism in its, or Hasidism in its early stages, those are really hard words to keep apart, Hasidism in its early stages was more Messianic um, than one might think. And of course, Hasidism does share certain features with some kinds of messianism. They have a real emphasis on the individual charisma of their leaders. And this was true in particular uh, with regard to the stories told about the founder of Hasidism, Rabbi Israel Baal Shem Tov, in the mid-1700s. And that's not all that surprising. That doesn't mean that they got this from Sabbatianism, but rather that Sabbatianism, Hasidism, and other movements in the early modern world are responding to similar stimuli in the culture around them, which is that there was more focus on the role of the individual, and therefore there was more emphasis on the charisma and the celebrity of particular notable personalities. So this plays an important role in Hasidism, but if the Rebbe in Hasidism is seen as one of the most righteous tzaddikim, the righteous people of the world, or the tzaddik hador, the most righteous person in the world, this could give rise to the notion that the Rebbe either helps to usher in the Messianic era, 
or that the soul of the Rebbe is someone who could be the Messiah, the notion that they are capable of being revealed as the Messiah. Um, there's an interesting example of something like this that we find a document that seems to be written by Israel Baal Shem Tov, the Besht. He writes it to his brother-in-law in the land of Israel and gives it to one of his disciples to carry there, to deliver to him. Interestingly, this disciple never goes to Israel, <laughs> um, but instead saves it and then later publishes it after the Baal Shem Tov, I believe after the Baal Shem Tov's death. Um, and the letter says the following. And I want to just read the, this important statement from the letter because it informs a lot of later Hasidic ideas about the Messiah. It's in the year 1746, right around the time just after Rosh Hashanah. He says that on the eve of Rosh Hashanah, I performed an ascent of the soul through adjuration in the manner known to you. And I saw wondrous things in the vision that I have never seen before in my life. What I saw and learned during my ascent would be impossible to repeat, even if we could speak face to face. Many wicked men also repented, and their sins were forgiven, since it was a time of great compassion. I was astonished that a number of individuals whom you also knew were accepted in repentance. It was a great joy among them, and they too ascended in this way. All of them as one made requests of me and entreated me to my embarrassment, saying, O oh, exalted, glorious master of Torah, God has graciously bestowed upon you abundant understanding that enables you to comprehend these matters. Ascend with us that you may help and support us. So great was the joy among them that I decided to ascend with them. In the midst of this unprecedented rapture, I saw in a vision that Samael went up to serve as the accuser. I took my life in my hands and asked my teacher to accompany me, for it is extremely dangerous to us in the supernal realms. I ascended level by level until I entered the palace of the Messiah, where he studies Torah with the Tanaim, the rabbis from the time of the Mishnah, and the Tzadikim, the righteous men, and also with the seven shepherds, These are characters from the Bible referred to as the seven shepherds. I asked the Messiah, when will you come, O Master? He answered, you will know it in the following way, when your teaching becomes well known, revealed to the world, when your inner resources have spread abroad so that others can perform unifications and ascents like you. Then all the forces of evil will be annihilated and the time of the compassion and salvation will have come. I was astonished by this and greatly disheartened by the length of time this would take. But while I was there, I learned three special incantations in three holy names and three holy names that are simple to learn and to explain so that my mind was set at ease. I thought that in this way, my colleagues might possibly be able to attain the same level and status that I have, namely, that they will be able to perform a sense of the soul and learn and comprehend like me. This text from the Baal Shem Tov clearly has a messianic purpose to it. And the idea that's described in it, that he speaks to the Messiah in the heavenly realm, and that he's told by the Messiah, his teachings are the instrument that will help usher in the messianic era. That by providing this transformation in the minds of other Jews around the world, that's the necessary precondition for creating redemption, for bringing the Messiah. But at the same time, it's the Baal Shem Tov's teachings that matter, and he was afraid what happens if 
people aren't capable of this. So he's given a special magical tool to do it. And then he's told he's not allowed to share that teaching. So he's given a way of expediting this process, but he's not allowed to do that thing that would help the process come about faster. So what do we learn from this passage? Um, it's clearly a kind of messianic activism. Clearly there's a, a, a messianic mandate associated with how the Baal Shem Tov describes his whole purpose in providing his own unique form of Judaism. On the other hand, it seems from this passage, the Baal Shem Tov is not the Messiah, and the nature of the activism is merely Hasidism. The nature of the activism is not political, it's not military, it's just Hasidic. And that through the spreading of the Baal Shem Tov's unique kind of teaching, this will usher in a generation that is capable and prepared to accept messianic redemption. So there's a tension there, but it's a tension of the longing from the Messiah, yet a form of practicing Judaism while waiting. We find this simultaneous longing and also waiting. And people are given something to do while longing and while waiting, but it's Hasidism. And this kind of Hasidism that in the subsequent generations places, as I mentioned, more focus on Devekut seems to be a kind of neutralization of some of the more really activist forms of political messianism. That is identifying a particular person as being the Messiah. Is that the Messiah call? No? No. Too bad. Another opportunity missed. Um, that's an opportunity. It's a, it's a, it's a, a, a way of giving people something to do while they wait for the Messiah, but at the same time, it doesn't have them coalesce around a particular flesh and bud person who's identified as the Messiah, generating a movement around that person in order to usher in a messianic redemption that, at least historically up to that point and this point, always results in failure. And rabbis were conscious of that, and, and, and they were certainly very careful about it. Um, we also find that in the Hasidic movements that then develop after the time of the Baal Shem Tov, they utilize the notion of Gilgul, or reincarnation, as they talk about Messianism and the soul of the Messiah. Remember the Talmudic tradition that stated that the Messiah is born on what day? Tisha B'Av. Okay, so the ninth of Av, the actual ninth of Av in 70 CE, I mean, is anyone born that day still alive? Right? So this is the question. Is the Messiah someone who miraculously lives forever like, like a vampire? Or is the Messiah a soul that's born and then reborn and then reborn again so that every generation is in some way a generation that has a Messiah in it, that the soul of the Messiah is always present? And what we Uh -huh. So you could say it's a Tisha B'Av at some point in history, but you don't know which one. But there's also the idea of um, a rabbi, who's a rabbi, who goes to visit the Messiah, but the Messiah is sitting at the gates of the city, maybe the gates of Rome, right? The Messiah is there. So Luriana Kabbalah embraces this idea and couples it together with the notion of Gilgul Meshamot, of reincarnation, and says the soul of the Messiah is always available in every generation. When he dies, it's reborn again. In fact, they argue that the Messiah was, his soul is the soul of Moses from the generation of the Exodus. 
and that this soul is reborn in many different characters. What we find with Rabbi Nachman of Braslav, um, his messianic teaching was, or his, his Hasidic teaching was fairly messianic, and his messianic ideas were not shared all that broadly within his movement. This was an example of esotericism that actually does seem to restrict some access to these teachings. He wrote a, a secret book called the Migilat Starim that for several generations was carefully guarded among the descendants of his, he didn't have any actual um, physical descendants, so he was the only Rebbe of Braslav Hasidim. Um, they've, they've only, since the time of Nachman, only had a dead Rebbe. Um, but they're able to have a, a continuing, um, well, there's a lot of Hasidic movements that have dead Rebbe's, and, and this is a phenomenon of the, of the dead Sadiq, who can still be a powerful, a powerful image and a powerful leader, and potentially, we'll get to this, a powerful candidate for being the Messiah. But this Mikilat Starim, this scroll of secrets, actually was eventually um, disseminated in some form, but according to um, Nachman Nebraslav, he also had other texts that he instructed his followers to burn, some before he died and some upon his death. And we actually, we know lots of authors who um, instruct in their will that their, that their writings should be burned. I'm not quite sure what that means. But it was an attempt to keep secret some ideas about, about the Messiah. And drawing upon images in the letter of the Baal Shem Tov, he says that repentance and spiritual disciplines are the necessary prerequisites for the coming of the Messiah, as well as asceticism of physical renunciation. This was really important. The Baal Shem Tov does describe repentance happening when he ascends to the divine realm, and that sinners being accepted into repentance is a sign of the imminent arrival of the Messiah, um, but he also regards himself, Nachman of Bratzlaf, regards himself as a Gilgul of the soul of Moses. And he, this, Moses, this soul was Kabbalistically understood to be the soul of the Messiah. And the previous owners of this soul included Shimon Bar Yochai, Isaac Luria, and the Baal Shem Tov. And what they say is not that these people were the Messiah, but that having the soul of the Messiah renders that individual capable of being a candidate to be the Messiah should a given generation merit the arrival of the Messiah, merit the time of the revelation of the Messiah. So it implies the Messiah is sitting there, following the Talmudic image, ready to go. And it even implies that there are certain people who can be known to be that person. They are the Messiah in the sense that they are the messianic candidate waiting for God to designate them and then reveal them to be the Messiah. What's also interesting about Nachman of Braslav is that following the notion of the footsteps of the Messiah, this idea that there will be pangs and apocalyptic wars and things happening in the generation that builds up to the Messiah, he was somewhat more apocalyptic in his vision than Maimonides who was almost completely mundane and restorative he read history, the history of his day, messianically. He interpreted his own historical moment as one that might possibly be um, revealing the final moments before the revelation of the Messiah. So he regarded the oppression of Jews under, in Russia under Alexander I as an example of the kinds of things that happen in the generation of the Messiah, that this is a, a, the birth pangs of the Messiah. 
He also talks about the growth of heresy among Jews as a sign that the messianic moment is near. And here he's referring in particular to the Haskalah in Western Europe. This he regarded as a clear sign that the generation was descending to a point that the birth pangs of the Messiah were clearly happening and this meant the Messiah was about to come. And, and should that happen, it would be him. Um, he also talks about the success of Napoleon's army in the, the conflict with Russia as a possible indicator of Gog and Magog, that the, the two warring armies in some of the more apocalyptic descriptions of the arrival of the Messiah, he says this idea described in literature about the Messiah in the rabbinic tradition can be applied to the real life factual circumstances of the historical conflicts of his day and that France and Germany or France and Russia, they might in fact be Gog and Magog. This could be the apocalyptic battle that comes right before the end. So in this case as well, in Nachman's case, we still find this tension. Um, he believed the messianic age was near. He believed he could read his own historical moment as indicative of that. He believed he could identify his own soul as the soul of the Messiah. But he preferred not to pursue an overtly political agenda of bringing the Messiah. He didn't want to reveal himself as the Messiah. And he didn't have a kind of activism beyond Hasidism as a way of trying to usher in the messianic moment. His movement is still alive today, despite the fact that he was the only Rebbe. Um, and there is still this tension that there's a clear expectation of messianic redemption within Breslov Hasidism. It animates a lot of their activity. Nonetheless, they don't press for a real world messianic movement like we find in some other cases. And a good example of a different kind of case where we really do see messianic movements happening in the mid-1800s are the students of the Vilna Gaon. Now, did anyone ever hear about the Aliyah, the, 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 the movement of the students of the Vilna Gaon, Elijah Vilna, in the mid-1800s? So a few people have. This is, so this is a small movement that's sometimes seen as a kind of proto-Zionist movement. And I don't think that's really what it is. It seems to have been a messianic movement that regarded moving to the land of Israel as a way of bringing about the Messiah. Um, they struggled to think about how Judaism was going to fit in to the new world around them. On the one hand, there was reform Judaism developing, where there's a transference of messianism into a more general idea of tikkun olam, in order to bring about a more perfected world, not a messianic one where there's a real sort of messianic movement and a restoration of the kingdom of Israel. And then there is orthodoxy in its various forms in Europe, but which tended to be much more passive, that tended to say, when the Messiah comes, you'll know it. In the meantime, stay put, send your kids to cheder, give tzedakah, observe halacha. Right? This kind of focus on a much more passive mode of waiting. The Gon of Vilna, it seems, was much more activist in his attitudes towards Zionism, and he was probably somewhat quiet about how activist uh, his messianic ideals were for political reasons. It, it could have been seen as 
um, a Jewish attempt to challenge political power in the Middle East, and, and he wanted to avoid that for good reason. Uh, but there were a lot of Kabbalistic images that he uses to talk about the idea of Aliyah, of ascending to the land of Israel and settling there. He talks about the necessity of raising up the Shekhinah from the dust. This is an idea, of course, also made very important in Isaac Luria's Kabbalah. And the Vilna Gaon, though he was an opponent of Hasidism, uh, was an exponent of Kabbalah. And he believed that by settling in the land of Israel, this would help elevate the Shekhinah and reunite her with the rest of the Sfirot, which would then usher in redemption. He also embraces this Kabbalistic notion that there is a lower arousal that's necessary, some sort of arousal in the lower world, in order to bring about the arousal above, the arousal of the divine. This is the idea that by arousing, raising up the Shekhinah, this will then awaken her husband, the Holy One, blessed be he, and the two of them will come together in a kind of Kabbalistic version of messianic redemption. The rectification of the split within the Sfirot that is caused by the exile of the Jewish people. By returning to the land of Israel, they will awaken the Shekhinah, which will then awaken the divine husband, which will then bring about redemption. So this is a very... Uh, kind of activist version of messianic ideas. But they also refer to this as a time of favor, um, which is the idea that there are certain periods in Jewish history where the Messiah could come. But there's not a lot of them. In fact, based on a particular passage in the Zohar, they believe they've calculated two periods that were a time of favor that were missed, 1096 and 1648. So first of all, those are not very close together. According to this doctrine of the time of favor, eight ratzon, you don't want to miss them when they happen. Also, what happens in 1096 and 1648? First, first, first crusade, and then 1648? Yeah, <laughs> Khmelnytsky rebellion. Um, so in both cases, global events that lead to massacres of Jews. And based on a particular passage in the Zohar that they interpreted, they believed that the next time of favor was... 1860. And so, in the early to mid-1800s, they start to, we start to see a, a movement of the Vilna Gaon students to Palestine. Um, more than 500 people move and resettle in the land of Israel, and five out of the Vilna Gaon's six most prominent students also moved to the land of Israel. Uh, not Perach but yes, they, they, they get Montefiore to give money, and they, they also start to um, make the most successful and deliberate attempt to have a Jewish jurisdiction over the Chorva synagogue area in the old city of Jerusalem. We find that there's some of the Vilna Gon students, the majority end up in Jerusalem, and then what they call the uh, Sfat Perushim, the, the sort of the separate ones of Sfat who, who, who settle up in, in the city of Sfat. Um, they... It, tended to interpret the contemporary history around them as the footsteps of the Messiah. Um, and much of the historical trauma and turmoil of that generation, they saw as an indicator that they were in the final moments before the arrival of the Messiah, which they were convinced was going to happen in 1860, and that if they miss it, they'll miss it for a very long time. Yes. Yes, yeah, so that, that's when we start to see the first movements of people to Palestine.
from the time of the Vilna Gaon as they build up to what they believe is going to happen in 1860. And, and they have this notion that that will be the Eid Ratzon. So this is the, the starting of a movement that takes, course over, takes place over a course of almost 50 years, which gives them a lot of time to really configure a whole religious community's identity around the arrival of the Messiah in that time. Um, they also reinstitute the idea of judicial smicha, of real smicha or ordination for rabbis. Actually, when I worked as a cataloger in the Jewish Theological Seminary uh, rare book room, um, where as I think I mentioned I was, I was a terrible cataloger because I just sat around and read interesting things, and I found this broadside that the, this group had published in um, in Sfat, saying that they are reinstituting real smicha. They had this idea that the Jews of Yemen had continuous smicha from the time of Moses, and that made it real legitimate um, Jewish rabbinic ordination. They also thought that the Jews of Yemen knew where the ten lost tribes were, and they dispatched um, a messenger to talk to them. Um, unfortunately, you might guess what happened in 1860. And the Messiah didn't show up. <laughs> Uh, so that was a bit of a problem. In fact, all that happened was the Damascus affair and uh, then a famine. So this was, this was bad news. Um, then there's a group of Anglicans from England called the Society for Promoting Christianity Among Jews uh, who then begins intensive conversations with uh, this group. And in 1842, three of the prominent rabbis from the group convert to Christianity. And then in 1843, five more, including three more rabbis, also convert to Christianity. So that was pretty bad. Um, but an example of the kinds of extreme things that happen when real-life messianic movements with very, very well-defined, this-worldly expectations become catastrophically disappointed. Now, another movement, the one that's the, the last one for this talk, is Chabad, the Chabad-Lubavitch movement. It's another example of a contemporary messianic movement, but it's much more complicated, and I think in a lot of respects, much more interesting for that reason. Um, Menachem Mendel Schneerson was the seventh rabbi in the line of the um, Chabad Lubavitch rebbe's. Um, he had no children of his own to carry on the dynasty afterwards. And when he first became the rebbe, in fact, by marrying the daughter of the previous rebbe, he emphasized the importance of messianism. Um, there, there was the, this then developed around uh, Schneerson's whole discourse throughout his rabbinic career, emphasizing we want Mashiach now, that they have to work hard to try to bring about messianic redemption. It was a very activist kind of messianism, but not one where he ever overtly said, here I am, I'm the Messiah. It was not quite like that. But the movement that developed around him clearly believed that at very least, if the Messiah comes in their generation, Schneerson is the person who is capable of being that soul. Um, if you've ever been to Kfar Chabad in, uh, in Israel, I went there in 1991, which is a really interesting time to be there. And you, you know, it's in this area, in the Sharon Valley area, I believe. And it has suddenly, on a hill, a house that looks like a row house from Brooklyn. And they call it 770 because it's 770 Ocean Parkway. And the stories they told is that everything in that house was exactly like Schneerson's house in Brooklyn. And 
Is it Eastern Parkway? What did I say? Ocean Parkway? Yeah. 770 something Parkway in Brooklyn. Yes. Okay, and, it's, and the, the Rebbe lived there, and so this is where Schneerson lived. And he didn't come to Israel with the idea that it was necessary to wait for the Messiah. But many of his Hasidim did. The uh, Kfar Chabad was a whole village that was, as far as I could tell, exclusively uh, people from the Chabad movement. And the hope was that when he's revealed as the Messiah, he'll be able to come to Israel and live in his own house. They said everything would be exactly the same down to a crooked, crooked light bulb. If a light bulb was crooked in his home in New York, it would be crooked here as well. Everything would be completely familiar. Um, I, I guess they were afraid that, that Brooklyn is so fantastic that people would quickly become homesick. Um, but what also we find with, with Schneerson is that he, he, would, he would typically deny people who tried to assert directly that he was the Messiah. Many more mainstream simply said he could be the Messiah. There was, um, at one point, the development of the song, you probably know the song, Yechi Adonainu Moreinu Verabeinu. You know that song? HaMelech HaMashiach Le'olamba'ed. So the, the, the song Yechi Adonainu, when it, first people started singing it, he wasn't uh, comfortable with it. But later it seems that this became much more common. But in the 1980s, the messianic fervor around Schneerson began to increase substantially. Um, and of course, pe from people in the fundamentalism group, uh, what else develops in the 1980s, much to the surprise of a lot of sociologists of religion? The, the increase of not only religious affiliation, but the increased activity uh, of religious fundamentalism throughout the world. This was a period of increased religious fervor. In fact, what we find is that the secular has become more secular and the religionists become more religious in some respects. Um, so this was a period of, of religious turmoil in, in the United States and throughout the modern West. But there was an, a famous attempt after um, his, his uh, Schneerson's stroke, there was a famous attempt to crown him the Moshiach in 1992. I remember being in Jerusalem at the time, and there were lots of newspaper articles about this, where uh, one of his, his Hasidim, Rabbi Butman, said that he was, going to, he was going to be crowned in January, he was going to be crowned the Melech HaMashiach. And a lot of other people criticized this, of course, and Chabad has been very controversial. But this then, it was clear that, that Schneerson was very uncomfortable with this, um, and uh, it was sort of suspended. They decided that this wasn't an official crowning of him as the Messiah. But after his death in 1994, in the period leading up to it, the messianic expectations within the Chabad movement became very, very strident. Once he died, there was the question, well, does that mean he wasn't the Messiah? Like Bar Kokhba, Akiva said, oh, he died, he's not the Messiah. Or is it that there are passages in the Talmud that could be interpreted to mean that possibly the Messiah what is someone who has deceased? So there's a passage that says, if, uh, if the Messiah is from among the living, it will be someone named David. And if the Messiah is from among those who are deceased, it will be King David. And they understood this to mean that this, this could be the Messiah. Uh, so we, that there were those who either said, so among the people who believed that Schneerson was directly the Messiah in the, in the Chabad Lubavitch movement, they, they call them the Mishichistim, um, there were several groups. There were those who believed he never really died, therefore they don't have this question about a resurrected Messiah. Um, I've spoken to people like this where you have, if you mention the idea of the death of Schneerson, they'll say, I can't hear you, and they will not talk about it. 
Then there, was the, there were those who did think that he died in order to become more powerful and that by no longer being limited by his body, his spiritual ubiquity would allow him after death to complete his mission and he would then be resurrected as the Messiah. Um, there, there were other people like Rabbi David Berger who really criticized Chabad for this particular form of messianism. Um, and, and said that this, this essentially was heresy and that he, he said not only was it a scandal that the Chabad Lubavitch movement embraced this kind of messianism, but furthermore, it was a scandal that the Orthodox world was indifferent to it. And they said that the very notion that the Messiah could come, be revealed as the Messiah, begin his mission, then die, then be resurrected and complete it, sounds an awful light like a, a lot like a religion, but not Judaism. And so th this, this was the source of some substantial criticism. Now, it's not clear to me how prevalent this was or is among the Chabad Lubavitch movement. What is clear is that there is still a substantial amount of, for lack of a better term, messianic discourse. There's like a messianic buzz around Schneerson, but not always clear about in what way he is the Messiah. So what does it mean when they say, we want Mashiach now? So there's a brilliant book that's written by, about this by a man who's actually my dissertation advisor at NYU, Elliot Wolfson, called Open Secret. And it's about the non-Messianic Messianism of Menachem Mendel Schneerson. And it's, it's very complicated, but he goes through the talks at the Fabrengans and other things that were then recorded of uh, Schneerson, and I think makes a very compelling case that what Schneerson sought to do was usher in a moment for Jews of a messianic mindset. That is, that the world had to be prepared for the possibility of a messianic transformation, and this was part of his idea of shlichim, of sending them out to bring Jews close to Judaism, was this work of preparation. But the idea wasn't that by bringing Jews to observe the Torah, then suddenly Schneerson would be the storybook geopolitical messiah, but that what Schneerson was leading them to do, and he says this in one conference to the shlichim, he says, the work of the shlichim, of the, chassid, the, the Chabad ambassadors, right, the shaliach who goes out, he said, the work of the shlichim is done. All that's necessary now is for people to be willing to welcome the messiah. And he has a lot of places where he emphasizes the messiah is here, now, ready for you, if only you can open your eyes and see it. But further interpretation of how Schneerson understands that, I think there's a compelling case to be made that for him, it was the notion of a dawning of a new era, not characterized by a change in the world, but characterized by a change in the Jewish mindset and in the way of thinking about how Jews fit into the world. And that if Jews could see themselves and see the world around them in a completely transformed way, then that is the messianic era of redemption. And it's even one in which Judaism itself would be radically transformed. And what he was trying to bring his followers to see was something that it seems they weren't all that open to, which was not that he's the Messiah and it's going to be a sort of leading them to the land of Israel in this radical supernatural transformation, but rather that each person, if every Jew transforms their perspective on the world, then that's redemption. And that he serves as the Messiah by being the end of messianic speculation. There was this idea that it's actually the, the legacy of Schneerson is not himself as the seventh Rebbe, but what follows after him, the eighth Rebbe who doesn't exist. That that's the non-messianic Messiah who redeems the Jewish people by, as 
Kafka would say, bringing in a messianic redemption that happens only after the Messiah is no longer needed and is therefore already arrived. Not on the final day, but on the very last day, on a moment that transforms everything in as Schneerson, at least potentially, saw it through a transformed consciousness. So these conceptions of the Messiah, they, I think, tally with some of the ways that the Messiah is viewed not necessarily as a person who redeems the Jewish people, but as a change in the status of Jewish life. It clearly has a tension with the normal functioning of rabbinic society, because, at least in the more activist visions of it, whether we look at Schneerson or Nachman of Braslav or the Baal Shem Tov or the students of the Vilna Gaon, it involves something of a transformation, something unsettling or disturbing in the course of Jewish history. Whereas the more passive movements are ones that tend to retract from that. They want to keep going in the way that they're going. They don't seek a massive disruption. They don't dream of a transformed Judaism, of a messianic Torah with a different halakha, but instead they embrace Jewish life in this world. That tension, I would argue, and we've seen this, I think, since the first day, it's inherent to rabbinic Judaism. There's no way to imagine rabbinic Judaism in the absence of that tension. I think it's simply part of how rabbinic Judaism is configured, a hopefulness that is sometimes waiting, but also sometimes an impatient form of waiting and longing as well. So okay, I want to take your questions. So uh, anything that comes up from the last three uh, classes, please uh, feel free to ask. Uh, yes. Everyone's transformation. Still everyone's. Yeah, but I, I think, yeah, yeah, and I think that that's in Kafka's statement as well, that the, the Messiah comes after he's no longer needed, right? The Messiah comes after, after the arrival of redemption. Redemption is a transformation that isn't ushered in by the Messiah, but the transformation that renders the Messiah irrelevant. Um, and that that's the paradox of the Messiah. I think that if you pushed Kafka a little bit more, he would say the world is characterized by a longing for something that requires the conditions that are created only by its own arrival. There's this longing for the Messiah to bring in redemption, but redemption is necessary for the arrival of the Messiah, and that's what, you know, Kafka wasn't exactly a cheery soul, right? So that's, that's how he thinks being is, is configured. So you can't have in the more classical Kabbalistic vision, I think that was all they were really interested in. But in the we want Mashiach now vision, I think they're still thinking of it communally and transformatively, but not necessarily through a flesh and blood political messiah. Yes? Do Chabad believe that Shniyasun is so alive? There are some who believe that he's I, the, the, the religious term we use for this is in occultation, meaning he is not present, not with us, but not dead. Um, but that appears to be a minority view, as far as I can tell. There is no clear census of what people think about the Messiah in Chabad, um, but there, there do still seem to be some who don't embrace the notion that he's dead. There are others who believe that he's dead, but still believe that somehow he will be revealed to be the Messiah in some fashion. But I think it's possible that there are those who believe that Schneerson's teachings 
enable the possibility of the Messiah, that those are the conditions that are necessary for the fulfillment of messianic redemption, was Schneerson's teachings being fully understood by every Jew in the world, and that when that happens, that is redemption, because everyone will then have a transformed consciousness. And that sounds actually a lot, it's very in keeping with what we see in the letter of the Baal Shem Tov, that the arrival of the Messiah is generated through the dissemination of the teachings of the Rebbe, whether it be the Baal Shem Tov or Menachem Mendel Schneerson. Kyla. Um, I think it's toward, at the end of Passover, the Chabadniks have a special dinner that's yeah. like the Mashiach dinner or something. What is that? Can you, what are they, are they praying at that dinner? Are they? Yeah, the, and this is intended to anticipate as well as to celebrate the arrival of the, really the beginning of the end. So that the, there's this notion that we're living in the, the days of the revelation of the Messiah, that the Messiah isn't just revealed all at once suddenly, but that there's this process of the unfolding of Mashiach, and that if we want Mashiach bad enough, then that will make that process complete. So and they, so that this is a moment of partial dinner? redemption. Are they praying, what are they doing at this dinner? Are they praying for the, the revelation? Or? I'm, I'm not really sure. I mean, I, I've never been to one. I imagine there's a lot of singing. Um, but the, I, there are, what's, what's interesting is that in some of these um, newly innovated rituals around Schneerson, there, there are certain, not radical, but certain ways where halakha is kind of peeled back. And so th this, is, this is not a standard normative practice but they actually push up against normative practice a little bit because of the idea that as the messianic age unfolds, halachic obligations change radically. And that in, in some of the more radical versions of this that we find not just in Chabad, but lots of places in Judaism, there will be a messianic Torah that's no longer divided into words that create stories and laws, but instead it will be a messianic Torah that's nothing but a series of the names of God and the prohibitions of the Torah will fall away. So it's a kind of dreaming for redemption and transformation that's a dreaming for the end of Judaism and the beginning of something new. And if we look at messianic movements as something like that, right, the people sitting at the special extra Passover, just what Passover needs, right, another ritual dinner. <laughs> but the, the, those, who, those who embrace the, the, the transformative ritual of bringing in the Messiah and the Messianic age and everything that implies, they're, they're actually, they look like ardent Jews, but in, in some sense they are ardent Jewish advocates of a transformation and the end of Judaism and the beginning of something completely new. And that's, I think, very different from other, in some ways, more standard rabbinic views that says we have to just wait for the Messiah, like don't even think about that now, that'll happen when it happens, there's nothing you can do about it one way or the other. In the meantime, don't rock the boat. Maintain a stable Jewish halachic community. I think these are two different perspectives that are quite different, but both of them are part of the rabbinic tradition. And that tension has always characterized Judaism. And if, in fact, we look at the different ways that tension rushes forth in Jewish history, it tells us a lot about the kinds of experiences Jews have in that particular moment. So this is a... This is a particular kind of, of, of Jewish messianism. It's kind of the messianism of a new age, ironically, right? Chabad doesn't look very new age, but this is a kind of <laughs> dawning of the age of Aquarius, a la Schneerson. Right? Yes? Uh, when uh, Zalman, Schneer Zalman of Vladi came out, uh, his theory was uh, except um, 
he was actually opposing Hasidut by using what Chabad is, Chochma Binadat. In other words, the, uh, th this imagination of uh, the Baal Shem Tov, that letter that he writes and wrote, must apparently not have been very valuable. Of course, then he wrote the Tanya, and uh, there you have the mysticism coming, coming back into it. So how can you say, how can you compare that with Schlereson, which is talking about individual messianism? So Schneer Zalman of Liadi is, is the first uh, Chabad uh, Rebbe, and yeah, there's no question that he saw himself as having a different conception of redemption than some of the other Hasidic groups right. around them, and all of them were, they were all inflected differently. Um, there, it's clear from how he writes it that Schneerson saw himself as bringing about the full culmination of the messianic process of his predecessors, especially his father-in-law. Um, in fact, he, he really regards his father-in-law as this character who provided all of the tools that were necessary, and this generation's task was merely one of completing the task that had been started. Um, but I think that he's, he's, very, he's very coy about how he describes these messianic ideas. He also is not 100% consistent over the course of his career, but he, he doesn't actually reveal all of his secrets. And this is one of the ways that, make, that, that we find secrets be powerful and also really hard to control. Schneerson doesn't just state in outright straightforward ways what he thinks, and neither do many of his, his followers. I think you were the one who said you once asked a, a Chabad yeah. rabbi whether their Rebbe was the Messiah, and, and he just smiled, he smiled right? The Cheshire cat. And, and there, because it's a, this is a mystery, right? This, this is something that can't be divulged openly. And mysteries in this way are powerful, but then people do all kinds of things with mysteries. And they are not easily controlled. Um, and in that sense, the movement of the Mishichistim inevitably is going to have certain departures from whatever it was that Schneerson was trying to do. And I, I was asked Elliot Wolfson the question, did, is there a lot of indication that Schneerson tried to, especially later in his career, but before his second um, stroke, tried to correct some of the ways that his followers were departing from what he desired. And he pointed out that Schneerson was quite aloof in, in many respects from his community. Uh, it's hard to say how much he was aware of some of the things that were going on, but there were moments where people wanted to identify him as the Messiah in the sort of storybook definition of the Messiah. And there Schneerson clearly responded sharply that he was not, at least not in that way. Yes, in the back. Was, did you, was there a question in the background? Yeah. I, you were discussing the question. I was going to ask, what were some of the ideas of the uh, messianic uh, age, how Judaism would change, but I think you indicated they smiled a lot. <laughs> that they, it's not clear what they meant, what, the, what would happen when there was a new age of Judaism. Yeah, and, and, and what role Schneerson plays in ushering in that new age. There, there's, there's a lot of reluctance to talk about that in, in too direct and too detailed a way. 
Um, and again, I think that's part of what gives that movement power. But we talked about in the first class the role that Messianism seems to play in Judaism, which is a dream, perhaps driven by a desire for transformation, but it's also hopefulness, right? The hopefulness of a change for the better. And that this kind of hopefulness can be a powerful historical motivator. This can actually keep people going. Chabad is in some ways a great example of that. They are um, very successful. They are well organized and they do succeed in doing a lot of things in the world. Um, Messianism is a big part of what drives that kind of motivation. So does Messianism have the, power, the potential to be a powerful motivator? Um, even if poorly articulated, perhaps even because it's poorly articulated, it can be whatever people want to imagine it to be, and that this can then drive them forward, push them forward on the stage of history. Does Messianism, in all of its messiness, right? Jews really put the messy into Messianism. So does, does the disorganized, I just thought of that. Does, does the disorganized nature of Jewish messianism actually give it this historical power because it becomes whatever people wish to see it? And, and then when it's not manifest in a messianic movement, which is always an inherent failure, even with the Vilna Gaon, with all these movements, they always lead to catastrophic disappointments. If there's a way to drive forward messianism that won't be disappointed because you can always reinterpret any moment where the Messiah hasn't arisen yet, that there's a reason for that, and that what you're doing still pushes it forward soon, quickly in our days, Mashiach now, that can, that can have a powerful historical force. And, and it has, and I think always has, had that function within Judaism with certain eruptive moments of being disruptive as well. Yes, the, uh, the one of the twins, which one are you? <laughs> Okay, um, what is the role, if any, of Gentiles in this drama, Okay, the question is, what is the role of Gentiles in the Messianic drama? There's many different perspectives on that. Um, what's interesting is that in the Chabad movement, including in Schneerson, he did not have progressive ideas about Gentiles based on things found in the Tanya. Um, Gentiles are not really humans in the normal <laughs> sense. So, the, and... This is one of the things that's, I think, um, part of the, the rabbinic tradition itself in some respects. This is a facet of it, not the only one. And it's certainly a part of the, the Chabad legacy. Um, the transformation of the Messiah will be a Jewish transformation for Jews. This is, this is not something in which Gentiles have an instrumental role. And there are, there are just too many very, very overt statements, especially in the Tanya, that, that Gentiles aren't actually full-fledged human beings in any of them. Yeah, that's the big difference. <coughs> I thought at the end, that all the peoples of the world that you know, participate or whatever. They will acknowledge the legitimacy of Judaism and the superiority of Jews, but it, it, is, um, it is not a pluralistic and progressive <laughs> ideal about universal humanity. <laughs> Yes. Just, just a, a, a historical question. When was the first uh, reference to the Messiah, or the, uh, the, the when in Jewish history was, mm. was was the comment made that there shall be a Messiah? So it's it's after the destruction of the temple, but in biblical literature, I don't know if the first 
If you were to look at it historically, is it Isaiah or elsewhere? It might be Isaiah. It might be Isaiah. Deutero Isaiah. Yeah. So I, th I, th I think it would be the it would be in prophet Isaiah promising the return and the reinstitution, uh, the return of the Jewish people to the land of Israel and the reinstitution of the kingship. This king will be anointed, Moshiach. It would be the person who is the anointed king. Reestablish the temples. Then, right? Yes, and and then the the kingship of the Israelite king in the line of David, along with that. Okay. All right. So, thank you very much. Thank you.